If there's one thing I think we can agree on this morning is that life is not easy for anybody, is it? Everyone's got their fair share of missed opportunities, of physical ailments, of financial troubles, and perhaps worst of all, of broken hearts. But perhaps some of the worst pain that we ever go through in this life is when we face someone who is in power, who is dead set against us. Nowhere is this more keenly felt today, I think, than by the poorest of the poor in the developing world. And you can just ask our missionaries about this. So when we read today's passage where a group of people face insurmountable economic injustice, and they face bitter slave labor because of their ethnic background or their religious background, it may be hard for us in the Western world to relate to this, but that doesn't mean that this passage of Scripture isn't eminently relatable to Christians around the world today. And just because we're not experiencing this firsthand doesn't mean it's not actively happening in this world. You know, I was struck when studying our passage this week for how intensely modern Christians and places like Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia relate to this story. For them, this is the kind of oppression that is not ancient news. It's their daily reality. It's an ever-present horror of the human condition, not in the the far-gone past, but in the here and the now. For example, in, in the South Asian Bible commentary written by dozens of Asian Bible scholars who experience things just like this day in and day out, they make note that even when the state itself, so even when it's not Pharaoh or the prime minister or the president or the king or whoever, even when the state itself is not tyrannical, there are systems of economic exploitation that wreak havoc on the lives of regular people and largely go unchecked. There's no advocates for these people that suffer. So I I quote here, similar harassment and inhumane treatment is reported by those who work in South Asian factories of multinational companies or construction projects. And this is especially the case when child labor is involved. Contractors who supply the companies with daily wages are in much the same positions as the Israelite overseers. They often do not receive money promised to them for their workers for months. And they personally are forced to take out huge loans in order to meet their obligations. And when they're unable to repay these loans, some will commit suicide. End quote. And this is the overseers. That's the managers in the world. Now think how things must be even more dire, even worse for the workers. They don't even have that little authority relegated to them. And I know when we hear things like this, when we see stories like this in a newspaper, see it on the news or whatever, I I know our hearts go out. I know we feel a pit in in our stomach. Not only because it's it's so upsetting to see anybody in the world suffer, but because we know ultimately that it's happening everywhere. It's been happening for all of human history. And worst of all to us, we are powerless in our own ability to stop this kind of evil in the world. 
Just when things seem to get better in one way, they get so much worse for other people in another. But let's return from overseas in our thinking. Because it's easy to, to go and, and, and look out at the world around us and, and use them as an illustration and not even look into our own lives. We have people in our own lives right now, I would guarantee us, who are suffering unjustly in this world because of somebody else. And whatever the cause may be, we know that for these people that we love, that we care about, that it's just not fair. It's just not right. It just isn't just what they're going through. But the first question we tend to ask in light of this is what must I do? That's the first question we tend to ask. And it's not a bad question. In fact, it's a good question. There are ways that we as Christians can help suffering people in the world. Christians have always been advocates for sufferings, for suffering people, for oppressed people. That's always been part of our DNA and our worship. The prophets would have us know that we are to walk humbly, to love justice, and to plead the cause of the lowly. We've read that in Scripture, and again in the New Testament with the apostles, they teach us to serve one another, to share what we have, and to only outdo one another in love and honor and goodness. But what must I do is not the first question, or not the first question, rather, that Christians must ask in this fallen world of idolatry and injustice. It's a good question, but it must not be the first question. What must I do? The first question is not about who we are, but the first question we must ask is who is the Lord? That's where all of this starts. That's where we ground everything else in this reality. Not with us, but with God. Who is the Lord? That is the question we must begin with. See, the force of our passage today does not come from Pharaoh's cruelty. And it doesn't come from Moses' arrogance or inadequacy. The force of our passage comes from the Lord's identity. Who is the Lord? It's the question of this passage. But it's the most important question ever asked in human history. And for people who live in immense suffering, in any era of human history, whether ancient or modern, whether here or there, the answer to this question is the most wonderful thing that a human being can ever come to understand doesn't matter if it's Moses asking this question in skepticism, who is the Lord? It doesn't matter if it's Pharaoh asking this question in contempt, who is the Lord? Or it doesn't matter if it's us asking this question in our desperation. People around the world asking this question in their suffering and oppression, who is the Lord? The answer to that question is the answer to everything. Recall that last week Moses couldn't really believe that the Lord was who he said he was. Neither does this week, does, does Pharaoh believe that the Lord is who he says he is? Who is the Lord really? Both Moses and Pharaoh seem to ask that question, interestingly. And even when they're doubtful or defiant, respectively, they both find out firsthand exactly who the Lord is. The Lord is the Creator. 
The Lord is the healer. The Lord is the liberator. And neither ignorance or arrogance about the Lord will stop the Lord from being the Lord. And that's very good news for us. Whether we find ourselves in a, in a disposition week in and week out to not really care, to be apathetic about who the Lord is, or maybe we find ourselves sometimes in a position where we're downright resistant to who the Lord is, even though we're good religious people. It doesn't matter what our disposition, what the world's disposition, what the president, what the prime minister's, what NATO's disposition is to the Lord. Because the Lord is who the Lord is. And no human response will ever stop that. So we get to the first five verses of our passage today where Moses and his brother Aaron confront Pharaoh. And here in verse 1, we meet the second Pharaoh of the story. This is the fourth overall Pharaoh we've met in the Bible from Genesis until now. Abraham met a Pharaoh. Joseph met a Pharaoh. Moses met this first Pharaoh. And this first Pharaoh, the Scriptures say, didn't know who Joseph was. And that's where this, the bad news got started for the Hebrews. Because he didn't remember Joseph. But this second Pharaoh that we meet in this passage is all the worst. Because not only does he not know who Joseph is, but the Scriptures explicitly say he doesn't know who the Lord is. See, that's the real problem. It doesn't matter if you don't know who Joseph is. If you don't know who the Lord is, that's when we're getting into some hot water. And for the next eight chapters, Pharaoh will get a front row seat in the classroom of Yahweh. Not since the Garden of Eden in the story have we seen such an outright rejection of God's Word and His power. This shows us how sin can root so deeply in us. I know when we read this story every year, we think, how in the world? After one plague, did he not say, oh, okay, you, I get it. If all the blood in the not, if all the blood in our, or all the water rather in our lives turn to blood, we turn on the kitchen sink or in the shower and that's happening. We'd say, okay, that's what we like to think anyways. Okay, this is enough. But we see how sin roots so deeply in people. Not since the founding of creation itself have we seen such an insistence on our human wisdom, our human power, our human authority. The kind that leads us straight into death. Pharaoh is a, a picture-perfect example of, uh, of human wisdom. It's a wisdom that embraces whatever I want, whatever the self wants, and rejects the, the unshakable truth of who God is. Who is the Lord? Pharaoh asks in contempt. And not after nine plagues that are the most hair-raising things you could ever imagine. People that make horror movies in Hollywood could not come up with a scarier story than Exodus. And he still says, who is the Lord? doesn't matter how many dead bodies line the streets of Egypt's capital. That's who Pharaoh is. That's the Pharaoh we're dealing with. 
But as commentator Christopher J.H. Wright notes, against the backdrop of that kind of person and that kind of regime and that kind of rebellion, we see exactly who the Lord is and what He accomplishes for His people. In fact, this story itself is the greatest act of redemption in history prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Before Jesus came on the scene, you could point to this being the singular greatest event in human history. That's how the Old Testament thinks about it for sure. But it seems that Moses and Aaron are caught up in in kind of a high at this point because Moses was scared the Israelites wouldn't listen. But not only have they listened, they've believed it. And not only have they believed it, but they've responded now by starting to worship. That's right, a good old-fashioned tent revival breaks out in Israel's ramshackle slave quarters. And Moses is feeling it. He's riding that high. He feels all of a sudden unstoppable, unconquerable. I think it goes to his head. Because when he shows up before Pharaoh, he goes way off of script from what he's supposed to say. For instance, in chapter 3, God tells Moses and Aaron to bring the elders before Pharaoh. Pharaoh would know the elders. He may not know Aaron or Moses, but he would know them. But here in chapter 5, we read that it's only Moses and Aaron that waltz in before the Pharaoh. They're already getting off track here. It gets worse. Because they use a name that the Pharaoh's probably unfamiliar with. They say that they come on behalf of the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, that doesn't strike us as problematic. But in chapter 3, we, we discover that God tells them to go in the, the name of the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. Because that's the name that the, the Pharaoh would have probably been familiar with. See, Israel has too much history, too much dignity about it. The word Hebrews is is dismissive. It could be even used as a derogatory term. It's a, the generic term Hebrew could mean something similar to wanderer. That would have been more palpable to him. Yet they, they start to come kind of arrogantly in the name of their ancestor Israel, in, in the name of Jacob. They're getting a little further off course here. Then, they don't even mention to say that God has met with them. The only reason they should be in His presence in the first place. God says, go and tell, Mo- go and tell Pharaoh that I've met with you. They don't mention it. And things get worst of all when instead of asking in the way the Lord tells them, let us take these people. As He says in chapter 3, they demand, let these people go! And finally, They never even mention the purpose of them coming before Pharaoh that they may go on a three-day journey into the wilderness to worship the Lord. So what's wrong with all of this? It may seem like, oh, they're just winging it. They're just getting a little bit off the script. OT scholar, Old Testament scholar Alec Mateer says this, the Lord commanded a corporate approach, meaning everybody would come together, 
and they would couch it in understandable terminology and they would make a moderate and limited request in courteous terms. That's what the Lord told Moses to do. But Moses adopted an authoritarian spirit. He alienated Pharaoh with incomprehensible talk and laid down an absolute demand. In other words, Moses shows up before Pharaoh in his own ego and with his own demands in his own name and wonders why things go wrong. Do you recognize that impulse in your own life? I certainly do. How often do we take what the Lord makes so patently clear to us and put our own clever spin on it? When it comes to obeying Him, how often do we default to just getting the gist of it? The Lord commands us to love Him. To worship Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And maybe we kind of wink at that and pretend like we do it. But our lives expose something so much different. We come to worship. We come to meet together when we feel like it. We pray, but only when we're in crisis. Never out of a sense of gratitude. We give but only after we've spent on our luxuries first. We read Scripture, but that's only when the Super Bowl isn't on television tonight. When something more pressing isn't weighing down on us. We serve, but only when it doesn't interfere with our plans. Only if it's not too inconvenient to help somebody else. We think about our name. What's in it for me? What does number one get out of this? And the question of who is the Lord so often doesn't cross our mind. Maybe this is just me. Maybe I'm just preaching to myself here. I don't know. But Moses and Aaron's plan goes over like a lead balloon. They come in their own name, paying lip service only to the Lord, making their own demands and their own words. And Pharaoh's response It's not surprising at all. He bellows back in outrage. Who is the Lord? And in parentheses, who are you? Who is the Lord that I should obey Him and let this so-called Israel? Is that what you call them? Israel? Who? Why should I let them go? I don't recognize their name and I certainly don't recognize His name. Not in my court. Not under my jurisdiction. I'll not let my slaves go. Why would I let a bunch of lazy, good-for-nothing dogs go? Moses and Aaron, just like us, have to find out the hard way sometimes. Because in verse 3, all of a sudden they remember all these important details that they left out. They say, oh, uh, the Lord is, is the God of these Hebrew slaves. Oh, and he's met with us, by the way. And we politely ask that you just give us three days to go into the wilderness and worship. And he may strike us with plague or sword. We'll die if you don't do this. Funny how the tune changes. But this is all too little too late. Pharaoh not only denies their requests, Something the Lord warned them 
was likely to happen. Now, was it because Pharaoh was going to harden his own heart? Because was it because he knew Abraham, or uh, rather Moses and Aaron were going to come in kind of an off-putting way? Only the Lord knows. But he warned them that this might happen. But then the worst of the worst happens in response because Pharaoh in his rage and his his indignation doesn't strike back at Moses and Aaron. It's like, guard, seize them! In kind of a Disney villain kind of way. Instead, he sets his sights on these Hebrews. Oh, so you're the reason why my slaves have gotten so lazy. I'll make sure that they rue the day that you had the audacity to come before me. Now what Moses and Aaron have done is not great. Seemed like really they've cared a little bit more about their own name than the Lord's. But how Pharaoh responds to all of this is even worse. Because although the altercation is between the leaders of Israel and Egypt, it's the common people who pay the price. Pharaoh projects his anger from Moses and Moses' God onto these oppressed slaves, calling them slackers, lazy, indolent. And do you think they have any recourse? Do you think they have any legal rights? Do you think they can claim that OSHA violations are being committed? Do you think they can complain that they're not getting their 15-minute break at work? The same day we read in verse 6, Pharaoh cracks the whip through his overseers, forcing the Hebrews to make the same amount of bricks in the blistering desert sun, yet now they don't even have the fuels and the materials they need to get it done. He assigns to them a task he knows is impossible. And he doesn't care. He is just downright cruel. It doesn't matter how much these people suffer. And he does it, worst of all, knowing that that they'll be too burdened, too defeated, that they won't have any time to pay attention to their worship. See, Pharaoh says they won't listen to the words of Moses and they won't talk about sacrificing to their God. Their work will consume them. That's all they'll be is workers. And inevitably, the Hebrews fail the impossible task of doing two full-time jobs with no pay, no benefits. They can't gather the necessary materials for the brick ovens and craft and fire the bricks all in the same day. They just cannot do it. be like asking this congregation, all right, come together, and, and, and make a nice new Toyota Camry. You have to find the scrap metal and the plastics and the, you have to put it all together. You gotta to get it done by the end of the day. And if you don't, we're gonna beat you. I think we'd all resign ourselves to getting whipped at the end of the day. And to add insult to injury, they're beaten because of their so-called laziness. Not because Pharaoh's excessively cruel, but because they're lazy. And Pharaoh, through his overseers, demand, this be done. This is what Pharaoh says must be done. Which we can't help but read as his mocking 
of the Lord says this. When he heard the Lord demands this, Pharaoh doubled down in sin and says, well, Pharaoh says this. This is a a particular kind of cruelty whose spirit still exists today. I fear in our own culture that we're, we're seeing some of this slip in to the water, so to speak. Our own culture is always wanting people to be more and more productive. Make more. Do more. Don't forget about holidays. Forget about worship. Forget about family. Business is your family. That's the worst language to ever hit the free market. Here, we're, we're like a family here at McDonald's. We're like a family here at whatever corporation. No, that's a job. Your family is your family. Church is your family. The CEO and the board is not your family. They sure don't treat you like family. Make more. Do more. Sell more for us. They never... And these places are are starting to get to a place where they never close to let people be people. To rest. To have family. To worship with their communities. Everything must be given for the sake of the, the bottom line. That's the spirit that's encroaching in our world today. In our, in our, in our communities today. I'll never forget at the, the start of this terrible coronavirus, listening to politicians in 2020 and CEOs on TV say, realizing that this is going to upset the, the, the economy. Of course we don't. That's not a good thing. None of us want that. But when I heard them say, well, maybe we'll just have to sacrifice the lives of grandma and grandpa in order to get the economy and the stock market up, I saw right there a people that would say to suffering people in this world, slackers, lazy. Get to work, poor folks. Who who cares about the sick and the elderly and the infirm? I've got money to make. The sad reality is that God's people are not immune to this kind of thinking. And we're fools if we think we are. Do you remember why Israel divided? Do you remember why the nation of Israel became the nation of Israel, the nation of the kingdom of Israel, and the kingdom of Judah? It's because Rehoboam, the little snot-nosed brat kid of Solomon, listened not to the wise counsel of Solomon's uh, uh, advisory team, he listened to his little rich trust fund buddies. He said, wouldn't it be funny if we imposed more taxes, more slave labor on our own people? And it led to a civil war. Led to the splitting of these kingdoms. The promises of God to make a great kingdom out of, of these people was not altogether canceled, but it was delayed and muddied by the nastiness, the cruelty of kings that said, let's make more money. He even bragged. His little buddies told him, if you thought Solomon's economy was cruel, and we read a critique of Solomon in Scripture, is slave labor increase under Solomon. If you thought that was cruel, then his world would be a nightmare. Little did he know 
what a nightmare it was. How often do we Christians fall into the trap of thinking that money is what makes the world go round and not the will of the Lord God Almighty? How often do we pay lip service to the Messiah, but secretly we're worshiping at the altar of mammon? Why do we let comfort and convenience hold more sway in our Christian lives than holiness and obedience and love? Eventually, the Israelite foremen circumvent their taskmasters and they go directly before Pharaoh himself, rightfully pleading their cause. But in verse 17, Pharaoh only doubles down like any rotten scoundrel politician would. Slackers, he says, you want to worship the Lord your God when you should be getting to work. Mm. Utterly defeated, saying that nobody would seem to help them. (laughs) The Israelites do what I think any of us would want to do. They turn on Moses and Aaron. They say, you have failed us. By going to Pharaoh with your big ideas. And so the Israelites call on the Lord's name. Maybe not even knowing who the Lord is. They probably had even less access to an understanding than Moses did, than Aaron did. They just called on this name. If you're out there, Lord, desperately calling, take note of us and take note of the failure of these leaders that you gave to us. Judge them in our place because Moses and Aaron have made us Hebrews putrid to Pharaoh. He hates us even more than he did before. We've sacrificed our babies to his Pharaoh. We're breaking our backs for his bricks. Lord, help us. They'll either work themselves to death or be slain with the sword when they inevitably fail to do what is impossible for them to do. Who will help them? Ironically, in verse 22, Moses goes to the Lord and asks, why have you caused trouble for your people? Just like like, uh, Adam with Eve. The woman that you gave me, why have you caused trouble, Lord? Ever since I went in your name, let's get real, Moses. Ever since I went in your name, Pharaoh is now troubling these people and you have not rescued them. Oh gosh, I see so much of myself in Moses. Isn't it astounding how wrong he gets it? Sure, we can all agree, Pharaoh is the obvious monster of this passage. But Moses is not the hero he thinks he is. And so as the passage winds down, we're right back where we started. Pharaoh is doubly cruel to Israel and Moses is in a crisis of faith. There stands the oppressor unchanged and here stands the advocate realizing how totally incapable he is of stopping any oppression. And so the question of what must I do? What can Moses do? What can Aaron do? What can the Israelites do? seems to be a hopeless question. It's gotten none of these suffering people anywhere. 
Instead, it is the Lord who must have the final word. And have the final word He does in chapter 6, verse 1. We read, but the Lord replied to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my strong hand, he will let them go. And because of my strong hand, he'll drive them out of this land. You see the difference there with what we're talking about, folks? The solution to oppression and suffering and wickedness and injustice in our world begins not with us or what we can do, but with the Lord and who He is and what He will do for us. Yes. Now let's not, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Yes, the Lord does call us to obedience and love. He does call us to action. If you think you can be a loving Christian without ever lifting a finger for anybody, you don't understand what love is. You don't understand what worship is. It has to do with obedience, with action. But it's the Lord's power which exalts the lowly and casts down the mighty. It's not our organization. It's not our voting. It's not our cultures. It's not our revolutions. These are the things that do not save this world. But the Lord does it in His name and His power. And He tells us to be obedient and in line with what He will do regardless of us. And the place where we see the name of the Lord. Who is the Lord, you want to know? Where we see that question answered. And His power unfurled in our cruel and oppressive world is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Who is the Lord? Pharaoh asks. Who is the Lord? Moses wonders. Who is the Lord? We ask when we're suffering and hurting and nobody cares. Jesus Christ is the Lord. See, in Jesus' day, another Pharaoh was reigning, but he was called Caesar. And his empire wasn't in Egypt, it was in Rome. And these many years later, there are other world superpowers reigning with presidents and prime ministers that could show Pharaoh and Caesar a few things about being cruel. And when we look out on our own sorry world, we can't help but notice how it's drenched in the sin of greed and selfishness. And how we contribute to so many of the problems in the world. We're constantly circling in waters of wars and rumors of wars are always on the horizon. The poor are with us always. And often we are the poor. And while we are called to love and give to everyone around us who is oppressed, we must never forget the first question to be answered. is not, what must I do? But who is the Lord? Because it's His strong and nail-pierced hands alone who will deliver us from evil into His undying land of love, redemption, and resurrection. Let's pray. 
Lord, help us to live and move and have our being in Your name and Your power alone. And as we look out at this world and ask, Lord, how can we be a blessing? How can we be a help? Help us. Give us courage to be obedient to this. But never let us lose sight of the first question, who is the Lord? And it's resounding answer, Jesus Christ is the Lord. Let that be our guiding light. Let that be our north star. For it's in Your triune name alone that we pray and ask all these things. Amen.